Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Okay, and why don't we stand and begin in prayer. For blessed is our God at all times, with now and ever, to the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation, to call upon Thee, the heavenly God, as upon a Father, and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Most holy Theotokos, save us. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. Our speaker this evening is a Catholic historian specializing in classical and medieval periods. He received his doctoral degree in medieval history from St. Louis University and in recent years has presented scholarly research on various historical topics at prestigious regional, national, and international conferences. He has taught both history and classical languages at the undergraduate level and he is currently a professor of history at Christendom College, his alma mater. He is a frequent presenter at the Institute and by the way, I think he just returned not too long ago from Constantinople, yes, where he was doing some, some research. I was reading up on that, so I can't wait to find out more about his work that he was doing there. Uh, he's presented a number of programs here at the Institute of Catholic Culture. He's a longtime friend, and so I don't forget at the end, we have produced at least six or seven different programs that he has taught on CD over there, brand new, ready for, uh, for you to take home if you would like. Um, so those CDs are over there at the end of the program. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Brendan McGuire. Uh, well, thank you guys for uh, a warm welcome back. I, I think the coming to the Institute nowadays, it's, it's very much like a homecoming, seeing all the familiar faces out here. Um, I'd also like to say hi in a special way to uh, my sons, Joseph and Jack, and my daughter, Aileen, and my wife, who are watching on the Internet at home. And uh, they... My, my kids don't know the difference between Institute of Catholic Culture on the Internet and Skype, so they, they think that I can hear them saying, Hi, Daddy! Hi, Daddy! Hi, Daddy! So, so I have to say hi to them. Uh, so Anyway, uh, I found that out last time I got home, and apparently they had been in tears because they were saying, Hi, Daddy! And I wasn't saying anything. <laughs> so, right. um, but... Uh, Anyway, so what are, we, what are we doing over the course of the next couple of weeks? Well, first of all, I think a good way to start is to just talk about this graphic, this, this excellent graphic that Deacon Sabatino provided. Talk about what, what we see on this graphic. On the one hand, we see something very familiar, right? We see basically a, a physical map of the Near East. On the other hand, there's something about it, that there's something implicit in this map, which might not be familiar to you. And that is uh, something that's more of a historiographical concept, namely the notion of the Fertile Crescent. So you look at this thing and you're saying, well, where's the Crescent? Uh, the Crescent begins down here near the shores of the Persian Gulf, and it extends up through the fertile valleys of the Tigris and the Euphrates, what we call Mesopotamia in geographic terms. The Crescent continues this way 
along the Jordan River, through the Syro-Palestinian region, and down the Nile. Right? So you can see how it's shaped like a crescent, shaped like a crescent with mountains to the north and a desert kind of in the middle, in the mouth of the crescent. It's a very rough crescent. Right? But what that actually is, it, it's a historiographical concept, which is, it, it's a relatively young concept. Oh, thank you. See, this is the 21st century. We've got these. Ooh, look at that. Uh, anyway, uh, so you, you guys can see the crescent here, right? from Thebes through Memphis, Jerusalem, Ramoth Gilead, Damascus, up here to northern Mesopotamia where you see Aleppo and all of that. Down, this is Mesopotamia here, the land between the rivers, the Euphrates here, and the Tigris over here. And now the, what we have to remember, though, is that in ancient times, the shores of the Persian Gulf extended very far up here in the direction of ancient Ur and Susa. Uh, the Shat al-Arab and the, this whole area down here, that's uh, more of a, a recent geologic creation because of the amount of sediment that the Tigris and the Euphrates were bringing down towards the Persian Gulf. So imagine, imagine the Persian Gulf being bigger. Imagine it extending something like that. And you have an idea of the, the, the geography and the hydrography of the Fertile Crescent in ancient times. So the, the notion of the Fertile Crescent, as we said, it's, it's kind of a recent historiographical concept. The phrase Fertile Crescent was coined in the 20th century. Uh, and so it's a concept that we have to be careful of. It's a concept we have to be careful of in a sense because it's very easy to slide off the Fertile Crescent and into geographic determinism, which we don't want to do, right? Uh, geographic determinism, it's, it's a very controversial issue in historical scholarship, not only in, in technical scholarly works, but even in popular works. Of course, the, the most famous work of geographical uh, determinism of recent times is the famous Gun, Germs, and Steel, an argument for why Eurasian peoples uh, achieve some kind of supremacy or hegemony over the rest of the world. And, uh, and the guy, he, he's, he's doing something good in that he's trying to repudiate racism, and he's saying, well, it's not genetic superiority, but there must be some kind of other determinism here, so he says it, it's geographic or geological uh, or topographical or climactic or something like that, right? And uh, so we have to be careful of geographic determinism when we're talking about the Fertile Crescent. Nevertheless, it is no accident, it is no accident that man's earliest achievements in civilization, in politics and statecraft, in religion, war, science, and technology all occurred here in the Fertile Crescent. Right? This is where civilization was born, and this is the land in which the story of our salvation is situated. And I think what we have to remember is that the story of our salvation, as it's presented in the Old Testament, right, it's a very familiar story. Okay? And uh, to some extent, what we're going to do tonight is set aside that familiar story, or, or at least allow the familiar story to fade into the background so that the unfamiliar context can come into relief. Maybe that's the best way to put it. But we have to remember that the Torah of Moses and the historical books of the Old Testament, they present salvation history as the story of the Israelite family, right? as the story of the Israelite people, the Israelite nation. So they're concerned primarily with Israel, understandably so, and Israel's covenantal relationship with Israel's God. As a result, the, the Old Testament pays kind of only incidental attention to the people's roundabout. Right. As the Israelite story you know, cuts a swath through the rest of the Fertile Crescent, you run into all of these people. You run into Hittites and Girgashites, Amorites, Perizzites, and Jebusites, and all of these other people. And then in an even vaguer way, there are reference to, references to Egyptians and Babylonians and Assyrians and things like that. Right. So there, there is this microscopic focus on the Israelite nation, on the Israelite people. Right. And insofar as peoples outside have an incidental presence in the Israelite story, these foreign peoples can often seem relatively similar to one another, 
right? They, they all have certain things in common. They're all idolatrous. Uh, they're all immoral. Um, they're, they all have tyrants and autocrats who lord it over them. Uh, they're all violent. They, they tend to be extortionistic and, and uh, exploitative, and they tend to be, you know, not the kind of people that you want to be, right? And the Israelites, insofar as they can keep themselves pure from the influences of those people around about them, insofar as they can resist the temptation to live amongst or intermarry with those people, then the Israelites do okay. Right. But when they live amongst and intermarry with all these other weirdos, bad things happen. Okay. And that's, that's you know, a big part of the story. Right? But to a certain extent, what we have to do is, is to really come to understand the story of our salvation history in light of those great achievements in statecraft, religion, war, um, and politics that occur in the Fertile Crescent. Because the story of Israel is illuminated by those things. And the story of Israel makes sense much more clearly when we put it against the background of ancient Near Eastern history, ancient Babylonian history, Egyptian, Hittite, and Assyrian history, Persian history, and I, I think perhaps even, even the, the great civilizations of, of the Hellenistic period and of Rome, right? All of these civilizations play an extraordinary role in salvation history. And it's impossible to understand Abraham and the Exodus, to understand the kingdom and its dissolution, or for that matter, to understand the coming of Christ without some sense of ancient Near Eastern history. So looking at the Fertile Crescent, we're going to take a look especially at Mesopotamia and Egypt and try to come to understand the way in which these civilizations play a role in the biblical story. So, where do we switch then in the book of Genesis? Where do we switch from the general history of the human race to the particular history of the Israelite family in a covenantal relationship with God. It's really in the 12th chapter of Genesis. In Genesis 12, we see Abraham is called by God to leave behind his people and his country and his father's house and come to this new land, this land that is promised to him and his descendants forever. So <laughs> the question is, who are his people who are his father's house? Uh, if you were an ancient reader, all of this would have made sense to you. You would have known what Ur of the Chaldees was. You would have known where Haran was. You would, it would have made sense to you that a Semite living among other Semites in Mesopotamia around 2000 BC uh, could migrate fr from, li from living amongst the East Semites and the sophisticated civilization of the third dynasty of Ur. He could migrate into the more anarchic land of Canaan and settle there. It makes sense in light of ancient history. So I, I think we, we kind of have to take a look at this, right? Because what we're going to see in the story of Abraham is that not only does his story touch upon the civilization of ancient Mesopotamia, it also touches upon Egypt, right? You'll remember soon after Abraham is called out of Mesopotamia, and he brings his family and, and he brings all of his, his possessions, his flocks, and he leaves behind uh, the Mesopotamian civilization where he had grown up. He comes into, the, into Canaan, which is more like the Wild West, right? Then there's no food there, so he has to go down to Egypt. Anytime you go down to Egypt, it, it's, it's usually a question of food, right? Why? Because of the fertility of the Nile. So Abraham, remember, he goes down to Egypt, and this is when he plays the old trick with his wife of saying, hey, we're going to go down to Egypt, and you're pretty good looking. So when we get there, just tell them you're my sister, right? And if you do your part, then things will go well for us. All right, is that okay with you? All right, fine. <laughs> you know, he, he pulls the whole wife is my sister trick. Why? Amongst the Egyptians, right? Because they went down there in search of food. So, um, first of all, let's set the stage then. Talk about Abraham, who he is, where does he come from, right? So we're told that Abraham's father, Terah, is the descendant of a long line of Semites going back to Shem, the son of Noah. Okay. And there's the whole genealogy of Terah and then Terah's offspring, including Abraham, in the 11th chapter of Genesis. Right? And we're told that they lived in Ur of the Chaldees, which is here on your map. Right? And remember, in ancient times, Ur would have been right on the shores of the Persian Gulf. And so what, what civilization then would Abraham have been part of? What civilization would he have uh, lived in? 
It's interesting. Uh, the civilization that we find there in 2000 BC, around Abraham's time, it was already very, very old. Civilization in Mesopotamia in 2000 BC was already very old. And I think this is an interesting point. Chesterton makes this point well. Right? Chesterton makes the point that we don't come upon civilization as being the product of a gradual evolution. Right? Civilization is not something that emerges gradually where, where Paleolithic and Neolithic men slowly form communities and then become civil, civilized. The archaeological record doesn't bear that out. What the archaeological record shows to us is man already civilized. Right? In the, the earliest stage of, of human history, we come upon man not only civilized, but man living in civilizations that were already old. Okay, at the time of Abraham, uh, Mesopotamian civilization was already 3,500 years old. The sacred tombs of the kings at Ur were already 700 years old. Okay, and the, the great Sumerian uh, Empire and then the great Akkadian Empire that had, that had conquered it, they had already come and gone and fallen, and Abraham found himself living in an empire that we call the Third Dynasty of Ur. Now, it is interesting. The third dynasty of the kings of Ur, it's this sort of archaeological or historiographical term for a highly sophisticated civilization that was based here in Ur, but it ruled over an empire that included the city of Babylon. It stretched in between the Tigris and the Euphrates up here, and they exacted tribute from among all of the civilizations in this portion of the Fertile Crescent here including among the Hittites and Indo-European peoples who lived up here at the foot of the mountains. Uh, this was a highly sophisticated civilization that made advances in science, astronomy, medicine. The language that they spoke is what we call the Akkadian language. It was a Semitic language. Remember, Abraham was a Semite, right? He came from among these Semitic-speaking peoples. Uh, that Semitic language, that Akkadian language, it was very, very important. It was the lingua franca of the Mesopotamian portion of the Fertile Crescent for about a thousand years. Okay, it was a language that was written using the, the much older cuneiform script of the Sumerians, right? but it's not to be confused with the Sumerian language. The Sumerian language was a language isolate. It was grammatically unrelated to Semitic languages. Uh, it's a language very, very hard to decipher even today. There's very little of, of, Sumer, of the Sumerian tongue that we can decipher ourselves. Right? The Akkadian language, on the other hand, is very well attested and, and very well understood by scholars. Very, very famous monuments of the Akkadian language would include, for example, the Law Code of Hammurabi that everyone's heard of, right? the massive law code of Hammurabi carved into a single stone. That's about 300 years younger than Abraham. Right? Law code of, of Hammurabi would come from around 1700 BC. Okay. So in any event, Abraham w was living in this highly prosperous civilization in which things like agriculture, the manufacture of textiles, uh, construction projects, and all of these things were surprisingly centralized by the state by the kings of Ur. The kings of Ur also presided over classical learning, and cl what classical learning meant for them was actually the preservation of Sumerian literature and culture. And so it's funny, initially the, the kings of Ur were sort of misread by scholars as, being, as representing a, a Sumerian revival against the Semites that had destroyed original Sumerian civilization. It's not the case, though. They were Akkadians themselves who preserved Sumerian literature and preserved Sumerian letters uh, as a, a sort of a literary language for elites. Right? So in this world where civilization is already old, okay, 300 years before Hammurabi, Abraham, Abraham is called out of this world and he comes and he enters the Promised Land and he settles uh, there, he, his, his son Isaac is born there, and you can basically imagine Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as being West Semitic chieftains of a sort, West Semitic tribal chieftains 
uh, in a portion that's of, of this region that's kind of on the fringe of the really fertile areas. You see the really fertile areas of the Fertile Crescent are here and in the Mesopotamian valleys and here down in Egypt. All right. And in, in the land of Canaan, in the Promised Land, you can sort of see the fertility of it on the map and that there is that little bit of green showing, if you can see it, between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. All right. But the land of Canaan, it, it always struggles to some extent with, with the fertility uh, aspect <laughs> in, in comparison to Mesopotamia and Egypt. So, in any event, this is an era in which it's actually very, very difficult for scholars to give a full account of the movement of peoples, war, imperialism, and this sort of thing. But it appears to be the case that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their extended family and their flocks would have existed in a kind of a political niche in between the, the highly centralized empire of Ur over here and the highly centralized empire of the Middle Kingdom of Egypt over here. In the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Egypt had been centralized after the first intermediate period and we had entered the, the Middle Kingdom. So the question for us then is, um, as we see Isaac and Jacob and these West Semitic chiefs, basically in, in this very familiar story that we're all kind of intimately acquainted with, living in the Fertile Crescent, living in, in a, a position where they're kind of caught between Mesopotamia and Egyptian uh, spheres of influence, they make this remarkable descent into Egypt, right? The sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, along with Jacob himself, they make a descent into Egypt, uh, which is fascinating because it's motivated by the same thing that motivated Abraham's descent into Egypt, which is famine, right? In, in the event of famine, you go down into Egypt because that's where the land is always dependably fertile, right? But the question is for us, I think, this is a very interesting historical question, can we situate the migration of Jacob and his sons, can we situate their migration into Egypt within the context of a broader migration of Semitic peoples into the Egyptian Delta? Right? And the reason why we're going to try to do that is because you can't explain the Exodus without it. Okay. So if you have your Bible, I'd say open up to the beginning of the Exodus. Uh, and this is where the, things get really, really interesting because you have this, this cryptic uh, kind of passage over hundreds of years of history. We're told the, the names of the sons of Israel, right? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the offspring of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the descendants of Israel were fruitful. They, they increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. Okay, great. So they multiplied, they grew exceedingly strong. Everything is going well for the Israelites in Egypt. And then all of a sudden... There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the sons of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war befall us, they join our enemies. Why would they join your enemies? They've done pretty well in Egypt up to this point. They've been living the good life in Egypt. Why would they all of a sudden join your enemies? Just this new pharaoh gets the idea that they would join their enemies? It doesn't make any sense. Right? And a lot of times when people come across things in the Bible that don't make sense, they say, oh, this doesn't make sense because it's the Bible and the Bible is holy. And so I'm not going to, you know, whatever. If it doesn't make sense, it just doesn't make sense. It's impious to ask questions. Right? Uh, and yet, of course, it's not. Right? The, the popes have always instructed us to ask these questions to, and to try to use the sciences of archaeology and anthropology and history and linguistics and comparative religions to try to figure this out. So let's try to figure this out then. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, let's deal shrewdly with these guys, lest they multiply, and if war befall us, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Ooh, yeah, we wouldn't want that to happen. Okay, so let's figure it out. What do we know? 
What do we know about ancient Egyptian history that can explain this? There is a sculpted relief from the 12th dynasty. Now, if, if you're talking Egyptian history of the 12th dynasty, that would put it around the year 1900 BC, so about 100 years after Abraham. There's a sculpted relief uh, with hieroglyphs on it that explain the, the picture there. And in the picture, you see these people walking with stuff. They've got stuff. What do they got? They have chariots. They have horses and other animals, and they have a variety of luxury goods, and they're kind of on the move, walking with these things. And what do the hieroglyphs say? The hieroglyphs say that this represents the migration of the Hyksos. Hyksos, very, very mysterious word. The migration of the Hyksos into Egypt. Okay. So what is that? Who are the Hyksos? What does that word mean? Um, you know, it's very, very hard to translate hieroglyphs, or at least it was for a long time because people didn't realize that hieroglyphs were actually phonetic. Uh, you know, hieroglyphs are pictures of stuff, right? Uh, but have you ever played charades? Right? And one of the things in charades is sounds like. Okay. So if I, if I want to do the word for half, I might say sounds like calf, right? And so a picture of a calf might mean half or something like that. That's how hieroglyphs work, but it's based on the phonetics of the Egyptian language, of course. Uh, and, and so deciphering hieroglyphs, it, it, was just, it wasn't going to happen until, of course, the great discovery of the Rosetta Stone and, and the deciphering of the Rosetta Stone in the 19th century. With the deciphering of the Rosetta Stone, it was scholars were able to piece together, okay, these hieroglyphs actually work this way. We can actually read this stuff. Uh, and what they found is that the word hyksos, that very, very mysterious word, what it means is the kings of the foreigners, the kings of the foreign people or the foreign kings. Okay. So... The foreign kings, the kings of the foreigners, leading their people into the Egyptian delta around 1900, 1900 BC, okay, to escape famine. So what does that tell us? It tells us, first of all, that that wave of Semitic migration into, from the lands that were dominated by Semites, right, which basically includes Canaan and Mesopotamia, from all of these lands that were dominated by Semites, you had migrations entering the delta here already in the lifetime of Abraham. Right. And certainly during the lifetime of Isaac and Jacob, these migrations would have continued. Okay. Now, sometimes these migrations are depicted as actual violent conquest. And the reason for that is the literary sources we have to explain these migrations of Semites into Egypt actually describe it in those terms. The main source for this is, is the great Jewish historian Josephus. Okay. So Josephus is a very late source. Right? He's an A.D. source, very, very, very late source. So he's working off of what? He's working off of Manitho, right? who's also a late source. Right? Manitho is writing you know, a good you know, 1,500 years after any of this stuff was happening. Very, very late source in Manitho. And we also can't really tell how much of Manitho is quoted accurately in Josephus because Josephus is our only source for what Manitho says. Okay. But to put it bluntly, Manitho was an Egyptian propagandist Okay, who argues that the, the invasion of the Hyksos was a violent one. He argues that the Hyksos had advantages in terms of military technology. They came in with things like armed chariots, compound bows, uh, and cavalry tactics, and heavy armor, and things that the Egyptians themselves weren't prepared to deal with. And that in a violent way, these Semitic people, these foreigners, entered the Egyptian delta and established their own dynasty there. Right. Archaeology and modern anthropology disagree with Josephus and Manitha. Uh, the story told by archaeology, it, it's a much more complex and subtle story. 
which basically involves the migration of Asiatic peoples into Egypt for economic reasons, primarily for economic reasons, uh, beginning all the way back maybe in the 12th dynasty. And, and we have some direct evidence of it in the 12th dynasty, and extending all the way through the 13th and 14th dynasties in Egyptian history. So what era are we talking about in terms of our own chronology? There has to be a caveat here, because you know, just like doing Sumerian or Akkadian chronology, Egyptian chronology is very, very difficult. Uh, just like it, it's very, very difficult to match up the life of Abraham with records from Ur or records on cuneiform tablets. So too, with, with Egyptian records, we have to be very, very careful. Uh, Egyptology spends much of its time sweating over these types of questions. How do you create a chronology for ancient Egyptian history? The chronologies that we have, a lot of them are fragmentary. They're based on you know, a single fragment of a king's tomb or, or a door jam that has a sculpture on it or something like that with, with you know, a little phrase or the name of a king or a regnal list or something like that. This is why the dynasties overlap, right? The, the, the dynasties overlap with one another because often, oftentimes different dynasties were ruling different portions of Egypt. This is why the 15th dynasty actually overlaps chronologically with the 16th and 17th dynasties of Egypt. And so we, when we see the 15th dynasty overthrown, the dynasty that overthrows them is the 18th dynasty, right? Really, it's confusing as all heck. Why? Precisely because Egyptology uh, has had to correct itself so much ever since Egyptology was invented in the time of Napoleon, right? We've had to correct ourselves so much chronologically that it's, it's really, really difficult sometimes to piece it together. What we can say, though, what we can say is that the kings of the 15th dynasty, the 15th dynasty of Egypt, were definitely... Hyksos. That is to say, they were definitely foreigners. They were almost definitely Semitic. Okay. So what era are we talking about? Well, let's say between 1620 and 1530 BC is our best approximation. And we have the names of several of these kings, but not all of them. And they ruled a portion of Egypt, specifically this portion around the delta. Memphis, Avaris was their capital up here in the delta. And at times, their hegemony extended even down towards Middle Egypt, what we call Middle Egypt down here. The area around Thebes, however, was different. The area around Thebes was never ruled by the Hyksos, by the foreign kings, by the Semitic rulers. The area around Thebes was governed by the, the successive 16th and 17th dynasties of native pharaohs. So what do we call the Hyksos? We call them the 15th dynasty. Okay. We call them the 15th dynasty. We date them to, around, to between 1620 and 1530. Now, chronologically speaking, this is starting to match up with the Exodus. Because what we're seeing is that period when the sons of Jacob, when the tribes of Israel would have been doing well in Egypt, when they would have been prospering and flourishing, it would have been under the rule of the Hyksos pharaohs. In other words, the sons of Jacob were part of a broader West Semitic continuum of people who came into Egypt, ruled Egypt, right, and flourished there until later events kicked them out. The events that kicked them out in the 16th century BC in the 1530s were pretty dramatic events. It actually started with uh, one of the last pharaohs of the 17th dynasty of Thebes. His name was Sekinenre Tao. And his, uh, his mummy, I think his, his mummy might even be at the British Museum, uh, but you can find pictures of it on the internet. It, ha it has a pretty good axe wound in the head, so we kind of have a, a pretty good sense of, of how he died. But Sekinenre Tao II, he, uh, he received a message from the king of the Hyksos. And the message was, I want you to immediately stop harpooning hippopotami. Now, if a man ain't free to harpoon hippopotami, a man ain't free, right? <laughs> but 
Why? Why was he told to stop harpooning hippopotami? Well, <laughs> we have to come to appreciate <laughs> the extent to which uh, the Hyksos, in adopting the title of Pharaoh and in gaining control of this whole area of the Delta and Middle Egypt, the Hyksos themselves had become Egyptianized. They had adopted the Egyptian zoomorphic pantheon of gods, right? And so they worshipped many of the gods of, of ancient Egypt, including horse gods and hippopotamus gods, right? They're very, very creative with their pantheon. Virtually everything in their pantheon is some kind of animal or mutant or half-animal of some kind. And so for the Hyksos, the, hip the hippopotamus god was one of their patrons. And it represented an act of blasphemy and sacrilege on the part of the southern kings, on the part of the 17th dynasty kings, that they had made a habit out of harpooning the hippopotami in the Nile. Right? Uh, and second Enrei Tau II decided, you know what? We're going to keep harpooning hippopotami, which is symbolic of the fact that we are now at war with the Hyksos, at war with the 15th dynasty, and we're going to drive them out of Egypt and retake the delta. Now, second Enrei Tau II, he uh, most probably died in battle against the Hyksos. Right? And his son then continued the war against the Hyksos, and it was his second son, Amos I, who finally, around 1530 or so, drove the Hyksos out of the delta and sent them scurrying back up into the land of Canaan, up into the Syro-Palestinian region, and back up towards Mesopotamia. And so Ahmos I, despite being the son of second Enrei Tau, Ahmos I, is, he, we refer to him as the first pharaoh of the 18th dynasty. Right? Why? Because you start a new dynasty once you get Egypt reunited again. So now you have a pharaoh of the 18th dynasty who's not a Semite, He's just waged a bitter war to the death against these Semites. His father was killed in battle against these Semitic pharaohs and their followers. And he takes over the delta, and he comes and he finds these people, and he says, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war befall us, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. In other words, you have a change of dynasty here, or the Semitic dynasty of the Hyksos, under which the Israelites had done well. That dynasty is now gone and the 18th dynasty takes over, and they say, let us deal shrewdly with these people. Now, the chronology doesn't get any simpler or easier from there. The chronology of, of when the Exodus actually happened, it's one of the more difficult questions uh, in all of scripture study, because on the one hand, you have ambiguities in biblical chronology. On the other hand, you have ambiguities in ancient Egyptian chronology, which are even worse. And as a result, you, to, put, to put it most simply, you end up coming up with two options for the date of the Exodus. There's a 15th century BC option, and there's a 13th century BC option for the date of the Exodus, depending on whether you go with a long or short chronology of Egyptian regnal lists, basically. Now, if you go with the 15th century BC for the Exodus, it's, satisfy, it's satisfying in certain ways. It makes sense in certain ways with biblical chronology, but it doesn't make sense with Egyptian history. All right. Because we know that the kings of Egypt in the 15th century BC actually exercised um, pretty much complete hegemony over this region uh, around in the whole Syro-Palestinian area, even as far up as the Euphrates. One of the kings of the 19th dynasty remarked uh, when he came upon the Euphrates, he was absolutely shocked that it was flowing south because he didn't know that rivers could do that because uh, the Nile, of course, flows north. So he says, I came upon the waters, and they are flowing back again, even as they come. He imagined it being a vast circle where the waters must flow south. The fact that they, they're flowing south here means we've come to the other side of the world. It's like toilet bowls flush the opposite way or something like that. He has a <laughs> totally weirds them out that the Euphrates is flowing south. So if you're talking about an era, though, then, in which Egyptian pharaohs ruled the whole Syro-Palestinian region, 
uh, even as far north as northern Mesopotamia, it's kind of difficult to imagine the Israelites escaping into the Promised Land. You know, if the Promised Land was theoretically ruled by Egypt in this period. And certainly the way the Promised Land is described in the Exodus, it's described as, as being ruled in, in this kind of anarchic way by these different tribes, different chieftains, different groups of Canaanites, and that sort of thing. So, we probably don't want to put the Exodus in the 15th century BC. If we put the Exodus in the 13th century BC, there are a few satisfying things about it. Number one, we come upon a period when Egypt was weaker. Okay, Egypt was politically weaker and unable to project power into the land of Canaan. Okay, so that's good. That means it makes sense that the Israelites would be escaping there. It means it makes sense that Moses could escape to the land of Midian after he had murdered the guy and that sort of thing. Okay, so we put it in the 13th century BC. That, that also gives us Ramses II, the great builder, the, the fanatical builder, and, and who was such a fanatical builder that there were times where he, he even put up like Hollywood-style uh, Western ghost town facades and in place of real buildings. He, even, he, used, he used artificial hollowed-out moldings and things like that because he, he was just so concerned to build, 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 build. He had very little concern for quality. It was all about appearance. And so it makes sense. You have this guy, he's a fanatical builder, and he's saying, let's put the Israelites to work. Let's, let's use these Semites for forced labor. Right. Now, there, that makes, there, there's a general Near Eastern context for this, which makes it make sense. I mean, think about it. What are we told? Uh, in, in 2 Samuel, we run into the, this fact that the Israelites are doing something similar with the Canaanites. Instead of driving them out of the land, as God had required them to do, the Israelites are, have been using the Canaanites for forced labor, and King Solomon is using them for forced labor and, you know, to build things, and, you know, to build the king's house and to build the temple and this sort of thing. So the idea that you, when you conquer people and subject them to your will, you use them for forced labor, it makes sense. You know, there, there, there's a context for this. So we can put it forward then and say that the, the dynasty that had expelled the Hyksos, maybe they're the pharaohs who don't know Joseph, right? And subsequent generations of pharaohs, all of them didn't know Joseph, and they all did the same thing, right? And so in some sense, you could see successive generations of kings of Egypt oppressing the Israelites and oppressing pretty much all Semites and anyone who would have been associated with the Hyksos dynasty. Now, other historical question then for us is, what are the Israelites doing religiously while they're living in Egypt for all this time. In religious terms, what are the Israelites up to, the descendants of Jacob? Uh, and this is where we run into, <laughs> I think, one of the problems with cinematic portrayals of the Exodus. Uh, cinematic portrayals of the Exodus, are, they're always very interesting because they, they portray Moses as being this, I don't know, this sort of hybrid of Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King, and it, it, like he's the, this political leader for an oppressed people, and he's going to lead them out of political captivity, and, uh, and his people have been faithful and, and yearning and praying to God to deliver them, and he comes upon them and he says, all right, guys, let's go. And they're like, yes, Moses, thank you for taking us out of Egypt. This is just what we wanted to have happen. And he leads them out of Egypt, and they go out in the desert, and then they're like, huh, I have an idea. Let's make a golden calf. Comes out of nowhere, right? Huge problem. It's totally illogical, right? I mean, think about it. What, <laughs> what sense does it make that the Israelites would have been faithful to their religion for 400 years, and then the minute they're out of town, they make a golden calf and worship it? It doesn't make sense, right? Nor does the text of the Exodus make sense. If, you, if you're looking for a narrative of political liberation, if you're looking for the idea that, that he is Nelson Mandela and, and he's the political savior of his people, that's not what you're going to find in the text of Exodus. What you find in the text of Exodus is that the Israelites, over the course of their hundreds of years in Egypt, they had sunk ever more deeply into the religion that was practiced round about them. Right? The golden calf that the Israelites make, that's the famous Egyptian god Hathor. 
God of the fertility cult of firstborn sons. And it's no accident that Moses, as a, uh, sorry, that Aaron, Aaron as a firstborn son, older brother of Moses, it's Aaron who makes this God for the people. He would have been an initiate into the cult of Hathor. Right. And when we talk about fertility cults, we're talking about uh, all the, the, the most horrific practices imaginable. Although I think unlike Canaanites, Egyptians put less emphasis on human sacrifice and more emphasis on temple prostitution and orgies. Right? But the, this is why Egyptian religion and, and idolatry in general, it exercises such a magnetic attraction upon the Israelites. And this is why when you read the narrative of, of Israelite history, there's constantly this effort to scrub the Israelites from the influence of the people around about them. Because monotheism, it, it just simply wasn't a thing in the Fertile Crescent. It wasn't something that anyone would have been acquainted with. It was totally unique. Right? For the Israelites to be monotheistic, it, it marked them out as, as a completely unique people. Right? And it, that's why it was so difficult for them to maintain it. Right? So hundreds of years in Egypt, the Israelites had sunk into the practices of those around about them, the practice of the fertility cults. Right? And Moses, it's interesting, Moses goes into exile. All right? He comes back because God calls him to come back. All right? And Moses, on his way, did you ever wonder about this? It's in the, cha in the fourth chapter of the Exodus. On his way into Egypt to bring the message to the Pharaoh that the Lord commands that you let the Israelites go, he stopped at an inn with his wife and God tried to kill him. Do you ever wonder about that? Strangest passage, Exodus chapter 4. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's great. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and sought to kill him. It's weird, isn't it? And then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a, bride, a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. Moses' own son wasn't circumcised. That's why God met him at a hotel and tried to kill him. In other words, God's message is, You're going into Egypt to remind Israel of the covenant, and you yourself aren't even living the covenant. You haven't even circumcised your son. All right? So God makes sure that that happens, and then Moses and Aaron go in, and they talk to the Pharaoh. Right? Now, it's interesting. Right? When Moses comes into Egypt, right, and, and he goes to the Pharaoh and commands the Pharaoh to let the, let the Israelites go, to go into the wilderness to worship properly, right? everything Moses done, does in there, it angers the Israelites. Everything Moses does angers the people of God. Nothing that he does is met you know, with, with a welcoming response from the Israelites. Right? Why? Because to them, this whole thing is just a big pain in the neck. The whole idea of being led out into the desert to be purified of the religion and the culture and the lifestyle that they're comfortable with, this is not something that the Israelites want. Right? They have to be dragged by the hair out of Egypt by the Lord to be brought out into the desert to be purified of their idolatry, to be purified of their pagan culture, to be able to worship properly. Okay. So, a few questions then about the plagues, right? Because you know that it, it's not just Pharaoh's heart that's hard here. It's the heart of the Israelites that's also hard. And this is, this is why the Lord has to um, show forth his majesty over and over and over again with a series of plagues. And you notice the plagues are very strange. The first plague is Moses goes down and sticks his staff in the Nile, and the Nile turns to blood. The second plague is a plague of frogs. Why frogs? Then you get gnats and swarms of flies and the death of the livestock. None of this stuff makes sense 
if we're reading this text in ignorance of Egyptian religion. Right? Ancient Egyptian religion was very, very different from the religion of Mesopotamia. The pagan religion of Mesopotamia, the, the religion that Abraham would have walked away from when he was called from Ur of the Chaldees and called to go to the Promised Land, um, it was a religion that, that was very discouraging and very grim. Man served the gods until he died, and at that point he entered a kind of a shadowy world, a world of darkness, a world of ignorance, a world of uncertainty, a world that nobody was really too excited about. You see echoes of this, this notion of, of the Semitic afterlife being a shadowy place that no one's too excited about. You see echoes of this throughout the Old Testament, even up into the era of the wisdom literature and the wisdom of Solomon, the, the idea that there is neither thought nor wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Right? So that, that shadowy Canaanite afterlife, that can be contrasted, certainly, with the religion of the Egyptians. For the Egyptians, the afterlife was portrayed in very, very detailed terms. To some extent, Egyptian religion was all about the afterlife. But man prepared himself for the afterlife through the service of these uh, very, uh, you know, really detailed and, um, I, I would say, very vividly drawn zoomorphic gods. Right? The pantheon of the Egyptians was a zoomorphic pantheon. Okay. And what is zoomorphic? Obviously, it, it, it's, a, it's a pantheon of gods made up of animal forms and animal shapes and natural elements and things like that. So one of the most important gods, of course, in all of Egypt was the river, the Nile. The Nile gave them life. The annual floods of the Nile were what made the land fertile. Right? And so what does God say to Moses? He says, I will bring into judgment all the gods of the Egyptians. Right? And Moses then goes one by one and slays the gods of the Egyptians. So when Moses goes and stabs his staff into the Nile and the Nile turns to blood, what is that? That's the Nile god that the Egyptians called Hapi, dying and bleeding to death. Right? When there's the plague of frogs, and there's frogs everywhere, and they die and they're gathered into stinking heaps, that's the fertility goddess, Heget, who was worshipped with, with unspeakable orgies, dying and being killed by God. When there's the plague of gnats, well, what did they worship gnats? Well, no. It's the ground. Moses strikes the ground, and the ground brings forth putrefaction and death instead of life. You worship the gods of this pantheon to receive life. Fertility, both in terms of sexual fertility and in terms of a harvest, right? And you stab the ground and instead gnats, putrefa putrefaction and death comes forth. Same with the death of the livestock. This is where things get really, really interesting. Uh, if the pantheon of the, of the Egyptians was rich in something, it was certainly rich in gods that were based on livestock. Almost everything imaginable was worshipped by the Egyptians. Cows, calves, sheep, bulls, frogs, birds, all sorts of things were worshipped by the Egyptians. Uh, cattle especially. You know, we found archaeologically these massive tombs of mummified cattle, uh, the, these cavernous underground tombs. Uh, and so the only w right way to kill uh, one of these beasts in ancient Egypt was in accordance with ritual practices where they were worshipped and they were mummified, right? You didn't kill them to eat them. That was sacrilege. That was blasphemy. You were never permitted to eat one of the gods of the pantheon. That was absolute blasphemy. So what god did they not have in the pantheon? Well, even the ancient Egyptians weren't degraded enough where they saw anything about pigs that was worth worshipping, so they didn't worship pigs. So the one meat that the Egyptians tended to eat a lot of was pork. They ate pigs. They couldn't eat other things because of the sacredness of those animals. So what do we see then 
with the Israelites, right? After all the, all the gods of Egypt have been brought into judgment, and the cult of the firstborn sons, finally, the fertility cult of the firstborn sons, brought into judgment with the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt, why are the firstborn sons of the Israelites spared? Right? Because before they leave Egypt, the Israelites are required to make an irrevocable gesture of rejecting Egyptian religion. They're required to slay the lamb. You kill the lamb, you smear the blood on your door, you're making a public statement, I have committed a capital crime. I have cut the head off this god, and from that point on, you can never return to Egypt. Right? Now, to a certain extent, all the details, right, all the details of the laws that you get in the Exodus, what they're really about, it's not so much about getting the Israelites out of Egypt. It has a lot more to do with getting Egypt out of them, getting Egyptian culture out of the Israelites. Why are they not allowed to eat pigs? Because it forces them to eat the things that, that Egyptian religion forbade them to eat. It forces them to violate the prescriptions of Egyptian religion again and again and again, right? They can't fall back on Egyptian religion if they're forbidden to eat pigs, because you're, you're forced to eat cows, you're forced to eat sheep, you're forced to eat these other things. But you're prohibited from practicing the, the dietary practices that you practiced in Egypt right, when you were an initiate of these various cults. Right? Why do the Israelites slide so easily back into the, the worship of the golden calf? Well, the fertility rituals that went along with it were, were too habitual, too ingrained in them, and just too attractive. Right? And so Moses' challenge, ultimately, is to get this Semitic people out of Egypt, right? but first and foremost, and more importantly, to get Egypt out of them, to purify them from the practices of idolatry, temple prostitution, and fertility cults, and to make of them a people set apart, a people utterly pure. Right? Now, of course, you're jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire from a religious point of view, and this, I think, will make the theme of our next talk on next Tuesday, is that when you jump out of the frying pan and into the fire, when you take the Israelites out of Egypt and you bring them into the land of Canaan, where there's a whole different religious landscape, a religious and political landscape, that will once again seduce the Israelites away from their vocation and away from the purity of their covenantal relationship with God. So, we'll stop there. Thanks. Thank you very much, Dr. McGuire, for a wonderful presentation, for coming back again. I know you make great sacrifices to be here with us, leaving your family and, uh, and driving all the way out here, so we thank you very much. Um, I'm sure there's, there are questions that you have. We'll take a short break and have an opportunity for those that would like to stay around. Are you able to stay around for a few questions? Yep. Okay, wonderful. I remember meeting... Dr. McGuire, before he was Dr. McGuire and before I was Deacon Sabatino, uh, in the hallway at Christendom College where he was very vigorously defending the, the Orthodox faith against those liberals at Christendom College, which we always seem to discover hiding in the corners. And, uh, <laughs> but it was a great memory, and, and that was the beginning of a good relationship. Now, we have questions. Come on, doctor, you can get up here. I'm sorry I kicked you off your stage. It's your, your place. Questions have to do with the subject at hand. They're one sentence long. They have a question mark on the end. Don't take my microphone away from me so that I can get a good recording. And if you're watching online, please place your question just below your screen. What is a good definition of Semite? A good definition of Semite is a descendant of Shem, the son of Noah. Uh, basically, that's what that means. So. Do you guys know who Shem is? You know who Noah is, I hope. Okay, good, 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 good. Okay, other questions, yes. 
Uh, Dr. Richard Gabriel has opined that uh, the instead of um, being laborers' slaves, that the Jews were in fact a military force, and that the they were sort of a mercenary army, kind of like a foreign legion or something like that. So maybe that ties in with what you started with. That uh, right. Well, it, it could be both. And yeah. in other words, under the Hyksos, they would have been possibly more like um, mercenaries of, of a military kind. We know that among this 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 sort of continuum of Semitic peoples who are migrating into Egypt, um, leading up to this, the establishment of the 15th dynasty, uh, many of them were uh, recruited as mercenaries. Many of them sought to be recruited as mercenaries because they had no food where they were from. And uh, it's very much like, you know, the Turks coming into the Abbasid Caliphate or, or I mean, it's sort of in, in a very loose sense the way in which the barbarians came into the Roman Empire and, and became federati or, or basically military recruits. And, uh, you know, so I, I think you, you do have some of that going on. The transition that's marked here at the beginning of the Book of Exodus, though, I, I think it, it's that transition from the Hyksos dynasty to an, a non-Semitic dynasty, which then sees these people as, as enemies and turn, turns them into forced laborers, basically, for that reason. So. Um, to return to the uh, question about the Semites, the Semites, mm -hmm. uh, what would be the population of uh, the Israelites in, in that particular time? And, I mean, what, what is the size of uh, this group? Um, what's the dimension? Good question, good question. Okay, so the, the description of the, the you know, 450,000 people in the Exodus leaving ancient Egypt uh, that, that's a, a definite number that you get in the Pentateuch, in, in the book of Exodus. And, um, but the, the problem is, archaeologically, people object very strongly to the idea of, of hundreds of thousands of people moving out of Egypt in this period. That They object that the archaeological record doesn't support it. And uh, I think, on the other hand, archaeology, and, and Near Eastern archaeology especially, it's a relatively young science still. And uh, th there's a lot that we don't know. A, a lot of... Um, a lot of things that people allege very confidently about archaeology and about what the archaeological record says are, are really highly conjectural and, and highly debatable, and they're constantly being revised. Uh, and, and population figures, it, it's, it's one of the diciest things. So, so you have the biblical population figures, other attempts to throw populations out there. Right? It's, it's mostly just people just shooting you know, off the cuff. So. It's argued that Neanderthals did not have a uh, capability to speak, uh, and clearly they never got to a point of writing. It would seem that in order for Christ's words to persist, you know, to this time, a written language and or oral tradition would have been required, mm -hmm. uh, given that he chose the uh, people of Israel who would have been the first runner-up? What do you mean? Who, what other uh, um, communities or peoples uh, whom had a oral tradition and or uh, written language could have been the chosen people to perpetuate the word of the Lord? Well, that, that's... Uh, a question I wouldn't dare to answer, not knowing the mind of God. I think, uh, you know, if there's anything that we do learn about salvation history in the Pentateuch and in the historical books of the Old Testament, uh, and this is true, it, it, it's throughout the Torah, you know, it, it's throughout Joshua, Judges, Ruth 1 and 2 Samuel, Kings and Chronicles. Uh, it, it's the notion that God actually always does have a plan B. And, and so when things go wrong, God, God always, he goes to a, a plan B, right? 
you know, so uh, Saul becomes king. Saul messes up. God says, I would have established your kingdom as a, as a perpetual kingdom. Instead, I'm going to take it away from you, right? Uh, you know, same thing in the time of Solomon. You know, Solomon's, uh, he's allowing idolatry and Canaanite religion to be practiced in Israel. He has 700 wives and 300 concubines, and he's accumulated gold and silver and horses and chariots and all these things that he wasn't supposed to do. And God says, you know, the kingdom's going to be torn apart, but I won't do it in your lifetime. Just so you know, you know, it'll be after you die. And, uh, you know, so God, God has a plan B, to uh, a fallback plan all the time. And so he's working through human beings and, and all of our stupidity and our infidelity and, and our inability to, to live up to what we're called to live up to. But uh, can we say what the people that God would have chosen if he hadn't chosen the Israelites? I don't think we have a basis for saying that. About Neanderthals, though, I do want to say, I think the, the more recent scholarship on, on Neanderthals uh, utterly rejects the idea that they couldn't speak. Uh, and for that matter, it, it's been proven that Neanderthals intermarried uh, with other peoples and that everyone in this room who's of European origin has a, a, decent, a decent chunk of your genome is Neanderthal. Uh, so I, I, I think it's a mistake to see Neanderthals as being subhuman. In, in fact, I, I don't think there's anyone in the scientific community who does see them as subhuman anymore. You, you mentioned the theatrics that mm -hmm. surrounds Moses, and can you comment on the theatrics that surrounds the actual exodus? How long did it take? And we always see portrayals, it seems like it takes like two days. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, it obviously takes a long time. Okay, so you have you have the passage of a great deal of time during which Moses is in interacting with the Pharaoh and going back and forth. Uh, but then, then, you know, then finally at the end, after, after months of this, they're told, okay, pack up, you're leaving tomorrow. And, and they go out into the desert, and, and God leads them out into the desert and destroys the Pharaoh and his armies and, and this sort of thing. But when, that's when you get into the 40-year period, the 40 years of wandering in the desert. And uh, the, a question that people ask a lot of times is, why are they in the desert for 40 years? It doesn't take 40 years to walk across the Sinai Peninsula, uh, even if you walk all the way around, even if you walk all the way around a couple times. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't take 40 years. Uh, but the answer to that is very, very clearly given in, in the book of Numbers when that generation which had been led out by Moses, uh, they were the apostate generation, they were the generation who worshipped the golden calf, they were the generation who murmured and mumbled and grumbled and uh, kept saying they wanted to go back to Egypt and all of that. Finally, when God tells them to take the land, they refuse to take the land. And, and the spies that are sent into the land of Canaan come back and they say, no, let's not take the land. Uh, and so what happens is that whole generation is told that they'll die in the desert. And so then, it, then they go back wandering in the desert, and it's only when the last one of those guys dies, his body hits the sand, that God says, okay, Joshua, you can lead the Israelites into the promised land. So. I had heard the figure Job was a contemporary of Abraham. Do you know anything about? It's a good question. Yeah, yeah, no, Job, is, he's portrayed as somebody who lived in the age of the patriarchs. Uh, he's not given a precise chronological date. I, I don't think it's easy to say that he was an exact contemporary of Abraham, but he is portrayed as sort of a, a Semitic patriarch of sorts from, from the distant past. And I, I think when you look at the book of Job, it's, it's interesting because the, the question of whether the book of Job is a historical book or not uh, is an open one. You know, theologically, there, there's not a particular reason why the book of Job would have to be historical as opposed to being a parable. Uh, and, you know, Job, he's not clearly connected with any of the genealogies. He, he's not clearly situated in salvation history. It's, it's a story that has a moral message to it. 
And so if we want to believe that he's historical and, and situate him in salvation history somewhere, it would be back in, in the age of the patriarchs, you know, maybe around the time of Abraham or even earlier. It, but it's impossible to say because there's no, there's no basis for situating him somewhere in the chronology. So. Thank you very much, Dr. McGuire. Just one last final comment that we are only a short distance now from the beginning of Advent and ultimately the celebration of the Nativity of our Lord. And here at the Institute of Catholic Culture, we are beginning our preparation even now, uh, or actually before that, because we did just study Job with Dr. O'Donnell. Um, so I encourage you, take this time seriously, spend it wisely. I just heard a bishop say, that he, he places his Bible, a friend of him told, told him to p take his Bible and put it on his pillow on his bed. And that's where his Bible should always stay. So that if he doesn't read the Bible during the day, at least before he goes to bed, he opens it up and reads it and closes his eyes to the day. It's a beautiful practice. I encourage you now, as we are beginning our um, walk towards the nativity here at the Institute of Catholic Culture to do the same in your personal lives, to be opening up your Bibles, reading the books of Genesis and Exodus and so forth, increasing your study and meditation upon where we have come from and where we are going and what God is calling us to in our life. Okay, may God bless you. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. <laughs>